One of the most important and yet least talked about issues facing artists right now is the issue of copyright. Especially with regard to the way music is used on the internet, it's important for artists to understand how copyright works and, most importantly, how to protect themselves. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. On today's episode, we talk about copyright, what it is, what threatens it, and how to protect the copyrights you create. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Can I have a taste of your ice cream? Can I lick the crumbs from your table? Can I interfere in your crisis? No, mind your own business. No, mind your own business. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Jessica Sobraj. Jessica, welcome to The Future of What. Thank you for having me. So happy to be on the podcast. Cool. So Cosigned is exciting. I mean, right now is is a very interesting time in the music business in general. There's a lot going on. But I think the service you guys provide is pretty intense and interesting and important. So do you want to just go ahead and tell us what Cosign does? Yeah, sure. So Cosign is really an affordable and easy way for creators to document ownership of their creations, whether they're music, video, imagery, documents, you name it, you're able to use Cosign to actually protect yourself from the things that you care about. So something that's pretty common for most creators to not know is that whenever you create content with another person or a group of people under copyright law in the U.S., each person has an equal share of ownership by default unless there is an agreement in place saying otherwise. So if you and I are creating a song together and you've put in all the work and I literally only wrote one bar without an agreement in place, I could come along later and say, hey, I actually own 50% of that song and have the same rights as Portia, which would be really, really messed up. So Cosign was really our way of helping creators avoid that mess and all of the other messes that, that come along with it, like not being credited properly for your work, not being able to be paid by distributors and other services, and missing out on royalties. And in building this platform that puts together these very, very important copyright agreements, we also realized that we could do copyright registrations with the Copyright Office really easily, too. So we just released that as well. Yeah. So let's talk about, I mean, you know, I'm sure people are already thinking about how this is important in their lives because we've heard a lot about lawsuits lately. In fact, just this morning, I think I read that someone who is a co-writer on a song just got awarded $44 million because they were left off of the publishing credit of a big song. So mm-hmm. clearly... Mm-hmm. I read that too. Yeah. I can't remember any details, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> but this is really, really timely in terms of you could be liable for a lawsuit. You have to make sure that you actually are covering yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think it's the, it's the money part that this really all comes down to. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, that guy was able to recover $44 million. But other people are, at least most of the people I know, are not that lucky. You know, we've got this big deficit of black box royalties, which are over, I think, over $2 billion right now. And black box royalties are basically what we call it when we can't figure out who's supposed to get paid money for a placement 
before a public performance. So it goes directly into the black box, which then gets distributed to the major labels and publishers instead of the people who actually created the work. So that was definitely something that inspired Cosign to be created. All of us on the team have had experience in licensing or were attorneys or worked directly with creators in different services and constantly came across this issue of needing to figure out who actually needed to get paid on all of these songs and all of these placements and all of these things happening, these transactions. And going back to our creators and saying, hey, can you send me the spreadsheet? Can you tell me, you know, how this, this money is supposed to be divided up? And they would say, yeah, we actually either never talked about it or just, you know, we think this is the split, but there may be a guy in, like, New Zealand who probably has 2% of the launcher. It's like, it's like those, those maybe situations. Yes, it's like 1% or 2%, fine, whatever, but that 1% or 2% can lead to so much liability and just money in fixing that situation when you think about your legal bills, just trying to get paid from a single placement. Absolutely. And I think it's also really, really critical. I know you can speak to this. You've been in this industry a long time. But, you know, just to, to talk about how when we rely on our memories, it's not the best way to do things. Because, you know, we are doing, we have uh, the 25th anniversary of the Bratmobile album Potty Mouth this year. And we're putting out. Mm-hmm. Happy anniversary. Yeah, Totally. And I've been talking to people about that a bunch. And, you know, it's real hard to remember back 25 years to what actually happened in the recording studio. And I was thinking about my own recording career. And, you know, I remember we we recorded two records and I couldn't tell you the name of the studio we recorded in. I couldn't tell you the name of the guy who was the engineer. Like, I really couldn't. <laughs> it's It's out of my head. It's gone. And That's the kind of stuff where, you know, it seems like when you're, you know, in your early 20s or whatever and you're in a band and it's fun, you know, it doesn't seem that serious because it doesn't seem like, oh, we're definitely going to be doing this as a business. But, you know, years down the road, it can become quite serious, especially if you end up having some kind of a hit song. Yeah, I mean, 25 years ago, for sure. Sometimes I can't even remember what happened, like, 25 minutes ago. (laughs) Totally. So it's it's, it's an issue. The really cool thing about Cosign, though, is that it's totally a collaborative effort. So instead of us just building like a really simple split sheet application where one person fills out all the splits and then you print a sheet and everybody signs it and you have to get multiple copies of paperwork and blah, blah, blah. Or in some cases, it's someone just completely fudging a split sheet to get paid and pretending to be other people on Cosign. Every single person is invited to the platform, and they all have a say in what they contributed. So it's like this one collective of people saying, yes, this is right. Portia really does own 50%, and Jess really does own 50%. Or if it's not right, we can propose alternatives right there on the spot. And it's so one, two, three, click through easy. I don't think you could have designed this to be any more easier than it is. And that's really a testament to one of our co-founders, Cassidy Williams, who was one of the front-end developers for Venmo. So a lot of the lines that you see on Coastline are very, very neat and clean and meant to be simple because legal is a really scary thing. Not that many people feel that comfortable going through it, and our goal is to make it as comfy and simple as we can. 
Great. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, the MMA, which was just signed into law, Mm -hmm. is a big deal, and it's probably the biggest piece of legislation to pass to the benefit of the music industry in like 28 years or something. So it's quite a big deal. Right. One of the things that's sort of the main bulwark of that legislation is that it changes the way that songwriters are going to get paid because it creates a, a royalty and it creates a, a body to collect those royalties. So how is that something that songwriters that you work with are going to have to take into account and what does CoSigned help with? It's a huge deal. So the MMA is actually creating different royalty streams for engineers and producers, like a specific thing for them. And on top of that, there's supposed to be this big database that's being built where we're going to have to say who owns what and what percentage they all own because that's how you're going to get paid. So now I think more than ever, it's more important to actually get these split sheets done and documented or else point blank, there is no way you're getting paid. It's harder now for artists to not do this because with all the revenue streams increasing and with all the different ways that there are to make money and to monetize your content, if you're not doing a very basic split sheet, there's, there's literally no point to you even putting out your music if you intend to make a living off of it. Even some of the major distributors now are requiring that you submit your split sheet and sound recording ownership information up front or they won't represent you. One, they don't want to get sued. And two, they want to make sure that they're protecting you and themselves and getting people paid. So now let's talk a little bit about my least favorite... <laughs> topic in the music industry, <laughs> copyright. Uh. And and the reason that I have a problem with copyright is that it has been real difficult throughout the last, you know, my 20 years in the music business. It's always been sort of difficult to understand and time-consuming and expensive mm-hmm. to register a copyright with the U.S. Copyright Office. But can you first explain to us why that is actually necessary? Sure. So, If you're ever going to actually pursue an infringement or an exploitation of your content that you didn't authorize, in order to be able to file that suit, you have to register your work with the Copyright Office. And when you do so, you're guaranteed a minimum of $150,000 and plus some extras for each infringement that you actually win in court. But again, you can't get there unless you actually register. And so some people, for like forever and ever have been doing this practice called the poor man's copyright, which is a practice of mailing yourself a CD or like mailing yourself a hard drive or whatever, whatever you created and having that suffice as your official date of creation and existence. It's a tangible record of something you created. And so you do have rights the minute you create anything, but in order for you to actually go ahead and collect if someone infringes on those rights, you have to register with the Copyright Office. Now, totally get what you're saying. That interface is not the best interface we've seen to register things. It's really hard for the average creator to kind of navigate and figure out, you know, what application should I be choosing? Am I filling this out correctly? Am I registering just one title versus a collection? And, And what are the rules? Because if you do it wrong and you try to register an entire album with different authors on it all on the same application, chances are your application is going to get denied, but you won't know for like a handful of months. So you've already put in all this work, and you're sitting there waiting, thinking it'll come through, and it just doesn't. So 
our goal in creating our copyright registration service, which we get to the copyright office, is to guide the average creator through it in very, very basic non-legalese and put up some roadblocks. So if you try to do something that we know the copyright office won't accept, we're going to stop you and say, hey, wait a second, you messed up. Can you go back and fix this or fix that? And that way you're saving yourself time and money as opposed to just submitting it blindly and, uh, and waiting to hear back on a denial. So that's really something we've been focused on is stripping away all of the unnecessary tidbits and the things that might be confusing and really just helping creators figure out what are the most basic and required fields I have to fill out and how can I port my existing co-signed information onto my application to get that done even faster. So if you're like a co-signed power user and you've already been using us to do all your split sheets and your other agreements, you can just click a couple buttons and have all of your writer information for yourself and your co-writers and, and everyone else automatically ported to your copyright office application so you don't have to fill out things, you know, over and over and over. Wow, that's really awesome. So give us an idea of what it costs because my understanding is it, it's a cost per song and it's kind of high. It can depend. Yeah, if you're doing a really simple application, so one song, one author, for example, the copyright application fee is $35. If you're doing anything more complex than that, which most of us are, then the filing fee is $55. So Cosign adds a $29.99 admin fee on top of that, Mm -hmm. which still makes us one of the, the cheapest and most effective ways probably the most, I think, in the entire industry to register your content. I know some other sites charge upwards of like a hundred bucks. And again, for us, we're all like creator centric here. So we wanted to just make this as affordable as possible. And we found that was the sweet price point for that. Cool. Yeah. No, because that's, you know, that's something that not only artists need to worry about, but labels and and everybody who's involved in the business. It's quite a big deal. Yeah, and I think there there may be some talk about the fees going up, too, Yeah, on the copyright office's side, yep. so there's that to consider. There's a lot of things happening right now around, I think, the office just trying to become more modern, and they should, like, major props to them for doing that, and there's some great legislation coming out right now that's on the floor for consideration that's all about making it easier for creators to actually file these infringement suits, because, again, there's, like, significant legal costs behind behind doing that, too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jessica Sobraj of Cosigned, which is C-O-S-Y-N-D dot com. Thanks for being with me today on The Future of What. I really appreciated it. Of course. Thanks for having me.
That was Lion's Mouth by Sweet Knives. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Peter Vaughn Shaver. Peter, welcome to The Future of What? It's a privilege. We're so glad to see you. Thanks. So our topic today is copyright. And I'm trying to make this really basic for people to understand because I feel like copyright and publishing are the two things that artists just really have trouble with. And they're also really important things that people need to understand. So we're just going to try to be like super basic. So can you explain to us which copyrights do artists have automatically? And then what do you have to do when you have written a song, when you've recorded a song? Like, what do you have to do with copyright? Why do artists need to know about this? When I'm advising people, I would say that there's kind of three main copyrights to be aware of. There's the copyright in the sound recording. There's the copyright in the musical composition. I see a lot of contracts that say song, and that drives me crazy because are we talking about the sound recording or the composition? Those are two separate and distinct copyrights that people need to be aware of. The third one is kind of artwork and related rights, design. People sometimes gloss over that, or if you think about iconic cover images or logos, logos veer into trademark, but for cover designs and, and stylized logos, there's a lot of value in those and people should own and be aware of the copyrights in those as well. Excellent. So how do artists go about protecting their copyrights? The kind of gold standard insurance policy is registration through the copyright office. There is such a thing called a common law copyright, meaning that it is true that once you fix a song or a composition or sound recording in some kind of physical format that you can reproduce it from. You do have some rights to it, but they're largely unenforceable rights. So registering those works. And and the, re the term registration is also used in reference to ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC. So in theory, if you are a songwriter or publishing company or don't have a publishing company, you're self-publishing, you should register those copyrights with both the copyright office officially and with your PRO, ASCAP, BMI, CSAC. Excellent. Back in my day, when, I mean, 100 years ago when I was in a band, we did not register our copyrights. And when the subject came up, which was, you know, after we'd been a band for quite a while, I remember someone saying to me, oh, yeah, you have to send an LP to the government and it costs a ton of money. Like, I remember that it being seen as, like, a huge obstacle, like, really difficult to do. Now, I understand that's not the case anymore. Well, it's super cheap. It always was. Mm -hmm. And really doing an album's worth of either sound recordings and or compositions, it's $55 for one registration. You can also register individual songs for $35 a piece. And really for the benefits you get, when we say copyright rights, we're really referring to a bundle of rights. So it's the right for other people to reproduce the work, the other, the right to kind of control any downstream uses of it. There's the right to take people to court, which you only get for federal reg registrations. You can also recover attorney's fees and what are called punitive damages are up to $150,000 per infringement. And it also makes things a lot easier when you're trying to get illegal content off of some of the major websites, Amazon, if someone puts it on Facebook or is kind of misusing your stuff, to be able to cite chapter and verse to your copyright registrations really hastens that process and makes your life a lot easier. It's 
really, without having that, it can be a real hassle. Just as an example, when folks come into my office and say, hey, I've been ripped off, and we look at the kind of comparative facts and circumstances at, at issue, my first question is, do you have a registration? And if they don't, there's like a wah, wah sound and like, it's a much sadder conversation. <laughs> oh, no. If if they have it, it's great because it's like, great, we will unleash the hounds of hell upon these, <laughs> these evildoers. And really those kind of things settle a lot faster than if you don't have a registration. So word to the wise, it's the best piece and the cheapest piece of advice I can give people is register your own copyrights. You can now do it online. You can do it online. It's, it's a kind of an artist unfriendly interface. People really struggle with it, but I would just say learn about it. Learn how to register that stuff. Even if you make a few mistakes, sometimes the copyright office will walk you through anything you didn't add or whatever, but it's a really valuable part of the music business to learn. And if you don't know about it, find somebody who can help you out with it. Right. Like a lawyer. Like a lawyer, but it's also one of those things where you don't necessarily need a lawyer. Maybe doing it the first time, which is what I do with a lot of clients. We set up an account for them with the copyright office. I walk them through all the screens that you have to do and show them where you can make easy mistakes. And we kind of get that stuff dialed in. Right. And the easy mistakes, are those the kinds of things that'll get a copyright rejected by the copyright it office? Possibly. Yeah. I mean, there is a definite protocol you have to follow. And really, it's just something that's just so fundamental. It just takes some time to learn how to do it. Okay. I've also heard, these are like the horror stories, that the backlog is really huge and that it takes months and months and months to get your copyrights actually registered. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, it can take up to a year for things to issue, but as long as you have it sent in and acknowledge that they got your whatever materials you sent in, then you can start sending it out to labels or licensing agencies or putting it up on SoundCloud. Those are things, as long as you've protected it, anybody who dares steal it or, or misappropriate it for some reason does so at their peril because you are protected. As long as it's in the queue, you're all set. So it sounds like this is actually a real problem. If you have people walk into your office fairly frequently saying, I've been ripped off. It's a real problem and it's a real drag for artists because the income streams are so limited these days that even if you don't have everything dialed in and protected or if somebody is making money off your stuff, it's just a really unhappy thing. But by and large, it's a lot easier to fix when you have those registrations. When I have to write a nasty letter to some record company or something and just trying to get things either taken down from places or my client paid on things, having that registration strikes fear. And it's a much better nasty letter too, just to say, oh <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you know, my client has some rights, they're not registered, but, and, and other attorneys will pick up on that. If they know you don't have the registration, it undercuts a lot of your leverage as far as being able to resolve those situations. Absolutely. So now I think one of the reasons, besides the fact that people just tend to not understand what copyright is, one reason that I think maybe artists don't get involved with it too often or, or shy away from it is because sometimes some of those big copyright cases that we have seen in the press just seem really confusing. Like I feel like I remember that blurred lines thing that came up a few years ago. I felt like nobody understood what was actually being alleged. Like, it seemed really difficult. Yeah, and some of it's subjective. I mean, the litmus test for an infringement is, would an average person, an ordinary person, listening to two tracks side by side, would they say, oh, okay, this one obviously came first and you borrowed it or were influenced by it or whatever. And there's a lot of 
cases out there where some well-meaning artist just like was walking around with some song in their head and like, oh yeah, that kind of Marvin Gaye-ish riff. And they bring that into the studio, it gets realized and it's still an infringement if it sounds like it. And sometimes you have these really kind of lame excuses with people saying, well, yeah, I love Marvin Gaye, but I didn't consciously do it. Even if you unconsciously do it, there's also another great case involving George Harrison, where the song My Sweet Lord was said to have been subconsciously influenced by the Ronettes, I think, doing uh, He's So Fine. Mm. And they kind of grafted out note by note. And it follows the same kind of rhythm. And, and he just threw his hands up in court and said, you know what, I must have just been influenced by it. He just kind of <laughs> like, and that was it. And he ended up losing the case, but it's that musicians are influence things you become a musician because you were turned on by what came before you and and those things become part of your own sound and it's really incumbent upon artists to find a unique individual voice and consciously avoid as much as you can and unconsciously try to avoid some of those influences that leach into your music but you know there's only so many ways to play the blues in a it's a set dna kind of pattern that anybody can do but when you get a little bit more kind of a built up song or something that's more distinctive that's when if you replicate that in some fashion then it can be problematic we're also seeing so much in the last 25 years or so, 30 years now, I guess, so much sampling, right? And there was a lot of controversy over sampling in the early days of sampling, in the early er days of hip-hop. But now I feel like sampling is kind of a little bit more sorted out. Would you agree? Big time. And it's really settled law in every state of the nation that thou shall not sample. And sample clearances usually involved, it's a two-part thing. You have to clear the sound recording sample as well as the underlying composition sample. Some people don't fully understand that. And if you look at things like some of the early Beastie Boys records, they're so chock-a-block full of samples that to replicate one of those albums now would, would be a $10 million kind of endeavor just to do that. And, and it's a drag for me consulting with hip hop artists to say, look, I know it's part of the art. I know it's part of the process, but thou shall not steal. And for people that do want to use samples, it can be a very difficult and time consuming and expensive process to kind of go through that. But I just say, look, if you're going to put this out commercially, you really do need to kind of clear both of those samples. Other people who just say, well, boy, that's going to cost a lot of money. I go, yeah, just put it out on a mixtape, but don't be successful with it. Because if you're successful with it, you're going to have lawyers for major labels lining up at your door and black helicopters circling your house to kind of take you out. Right. So, so it's, it's cheaper to clear a sample up front than it is to pay the lawsuit. Very much so. But some of those things, as I said, even getting the attention of a publishing company sometime to clear the publishing side of the sample is a very, very difficult thing. If they don't sense it's going to be a lot of money for them, they're not going to give you the time of day. And I just tell people, do not get married to certain samples. Don't put something out or get to like a week before the release date and like, oh, dude, I guess I better clear these samples. Yeah, you better. So Wow. That's so fascinating. YouTube is always the eternal thorn in the side of any record label, or really it should be everyone in the music business. <laughs> if it's not, I'm surprised. Because YouTube is really like that only on a huge scale. It's basically like the, the one place where everyone is allowed to just use other people's creations in a way where we don't actually have consent. That's the bottom line. We don't have 
a free market solution to setting the prices for the usages. And we don't actually have consent because the way that DMCA has been structured, there's no such thing as take down, stay down. And it becomes a giant game of whack-a-mole, which is kind of a drag. I have one client, the cellist Zoe Keating, who she does these really intense kind of instrumental works and people love them. And then by her own count, I think found like 13,000 examples of somebody using her songs in cat videos and whatever else. And she just kind of threw up her hands. But there is something called content ID. And that is helpful because it basically strips the money that people are making from using your material. There's a unique thumbprint on your songs and they can trace some of that. So even for those 13,000 videos, you can harvest money that people are using to monetize those videos and it goes to the artist. So there is a little bit of a turnaround there, but by and large, it's a real devilment to have that stuff out there everywhere. And there's only so much time in the day to do takedown notices. And, and by the way, if you, if you have stuff that is being used out there, most major websites, including YouTube, have a intake portal for DMCA or Digital Millennium Copyright Act actions to take that music down. Normally, once you give notice to that entity that they're infringing or they're assisting in an infringement, if they take it down, they're not liable. If they leave it up there, in theory, they could be considered a secondary or contributing infringer and could be equally liable along with the actual person that posted that infringing content. So there are ways to get around a little bit, but it's a real time-consuming and thorny process. Yeah. I mean, you may take one site down and then another one pops up with the exact same content. Absolutely. So it's quite awful. But the reason I bring it up is because it seems like we've been successful where sampling is concerned for copyright law. And we're unsuccessful at this time where YouTube is concerned. And it's the exact same argument because the opponents to the music industry's position say, oh, if you ding people, if you don't allow people to upload their user-generated content, then you're stifling creativity. That's the like free internet people's argument as, as well, I understand that was it. the whole kind of bullshit justification for Napster. Oh, it increases the markets. It, it's like... Grateful Dead tape trading and putting the stuff out there for free is helpful. Not if you're running a label or <laughs> trying to, uh, as an artist, trying to make a living. It's right. a drag right. and it's it's still illegal no matter how you kind of cut it. Right. And I, the one thing that gives me hope in the YouTube conversation is I think that people are starting to understand the difference, like the actual value gap, like what is the value gap? And the value gap, for those who don't understand it, is the difference between the amount of money made by artists and labels, which is completely not market value. It's just whatever pennies they throw in our direction from Content ID versus the amount of money that Google is making selling advertising on all of this content, which is billions and billions oh, and billions. I have the same problem with streaming because it's become such a big way that especially younger people are consuming music now, but it's death for artists and labels because they're not buying the product anymore. They just have these little streams that generate micro penny payments that uh, for big artists, sure, you can fill up the tip jar pretty quickly. But other than that, it's really kind of, in some sense, devaluing music and really harming the sustainability of the industry. Yeah, I pulled my Spotify, just it happened to be Spotify, spreadsheet from one month, and there were 300,000 lines of data. And 10%, so 30,000 lines, were for transactions of above one penny. Hmm. So... 10% of one month's worth of money that I'm making is above one penny. 
So, Unbelievable. Yeah. And that's a catalog of 6,000 songs. So think about, you know, someone who's only got one album or two albums. It's gotten really tough just to kind of make a living. It's all about sustainability and looking at other sources of, of revenue now. Things like licensing, it really has come up quite a bit. I do a lot of work with that. And if you own the copyrights to things, you know, it used to be you you don't have to have a label to do it. But I'll bring up the example of Zoe Keating again. She owns all her own sound recordings. She owns all her own publishing. And when someone comes along with a very attractive licensing opportunity, and she gets a couple of those month, by the way, it all goes to her. And Mm -hmm. to me, that is the new model. Or if you look at what Amanda Palmer has done in terms of monetization and kind of bringing everything in-house, including gig ticket sales, there's so many ways you can just kind of generate a little bit more money and remain sustainable. Yeah. I mean, I say that on the show all the time, that some artists don't need labels, but the trade-off is that if you're going to be an artist who doesn't need a label, you're going to have to do a lot of work. You're going to be an artist who does a lot of work, or you're going to have to put a team together. And that's just how it works. I mean, labels basically are teams for artists to help them. I mean, labels, it's all about advertising and and maybe tour support and PR. There's so many reasons why you would want to work with a label. But again, most independent artists have to wear seven hats as far as being the musician and everything on the business side. Right. And I feel like that's unfair to artists. I mean, at some point, I wish we could get back to a place where artists could be artists and make a sustainable living and not also have to be like a recording engineer and a mastering engineer and a publicist, you know, all of these crazy things. I'll tell you that (laughs) one. And I will say this, it's really incumbent upon all artists to get hip to the music business end of things. The more you know about that, the less you are going to get hosed by some horrible situation. And if you talk to people who've been in the industry for a long time, they all have horror stories, which I love hearing because, oh, great, another cautionary tale that you probably could have avoided by registering your copyrights or not giving up your publishing in some stupid deal or whatever. So a little bit of knowledge and constant learning about this stuff. And I would encourage all artists to the more you know about it, the better off you're going to be. So yeah, it's great to be creative all the time, but there's also that other side of it. Yeah. And that's why I do this podcast. So thank you for saying that because that's the point of what we're doing here. It's like, we want the people to understand it because honest to God, an informed artist is so much more interesting to me than someone who knows nothing about the business. Because guess what? This is my business. Like, therefore, it would be great if you want to come work with me, if you kind of know something about what the heck is going on. Oh, I'd say about 5% of my client base understands the business side <laughs> to a, a good degree. Everybody else is just, I'm just encouraging them, learn about this stuff. Right. Get, do the copyrights, do what I call the preventative dentistry aspects of it, getting hooked up with a PRO, ASCAP, BMI, CSAC. It's all just about maximizing those income streams as tiny as some of those income streams might be. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you have said it all. So Peter Von Shaver, thank you so much for being with us today on The Future of What? Thank you very much.
That was Strange Animals by Sweet Knives. You're listening to The Future of What? After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Simon Tam. Simon, welcome back to The Future of What? Thanks so much for having me. So nice to talk to you, as usual. So let me give you a little lowdown. This episode is going to be about copyright, and I'm trying to make it as basic as possible because I think that, you know, copyright along with publishing are like the two most difficult things for artists to understand. And they're also, of course, two of the most important issues for them to understand and and areas of music. And you've gotten at this point a lot of experience, possibly inadvertently, with copyright law and how copyright works. Yeah, between copyrights and trademarks, all I need to do now is invent something and get a patent. Yeah, exactly. They don't have the entire like trilogy of IP law down. <laughs> yeah, it's the trifecta. Exactly. So do you want to just start by like talking a little bit about, you know, what is important about copyright? Like why should artists understand what copyright is? Sure. I mean, I think the most important thing about copyright is that it affords protection for for your rights, for your for your music and for your lyrics. It also can relate to things like arrangements of existing music. So if you take an old song that you have and maybe you add an extra chorus or you change the bridge around, you do some other things to it, you still want to be able to protect that. And in order to do that, you actually have to register a copyright for your music. And what's interesting is that because it actually is complex because not only do you, can you get a copyright on the original work itself, but it also has to do with like the tangible object, like the recording of it itself, the album, like the physical CDs, or even like the notes and words written out on like sheet music as well. And where do you have to go to get this copyright? You have to get it from the government? You do, yeah, the U.S. Copyright Office. Now, there's this kind of old urban legend that if you mail a demo tape to yourself that it actually gives you copyright protection, (laughs) but that's not how it works, unfortunately. All you're doing at that point is just paying for postage. (laughs) (laughs) Technically speaking, you do have some copyright rights, like you own your music the moment you create it. You own the lyrics the instant that you actually write down your lyrics. That, that's always yours. But in order to be eligible for copyright protection, you actually have to register it through the copyright office. And thankfully, these days, it's a little bit easier than it used to be because you could do all of that online and it isn't that expensive either. You can usually do it for about 30 bucks and upload your entire album all at once and get it all taken care of. So 30 bucks for your whole album? Yeah, roughly. I think it's like 35 for what they call the ecosystem, which is the online registration. It used to be more expensive because you also had to ship copies of your music or CDs and things to them. But now you can just upload everything. And you can even do it the moment you begin working on an album just to let them know it's a work in progress. And then as soon as it's created and finished, you, you just upload it. That way you have the copyright origin date a little bit earlier than the actual release date of the album. So your your rights go a little further back. And is that how you do it now when you're writing songs? Yeah, as soon as we start working on, a, on an album or a collection of things, I, I just begin filing something because you pay the fee and then you can just start adding stuff to it. Like as soon as you know, okay, these are the songs that are going to be on the release, you can begin doing this. And 
it just makes it a lot easier if you build it into the process. Kind of like if you start thinking about how am I going to promote this record? How am I, you know, who's the right audience for this? If you just build that into the process of the creation of your music, it just makes it a lot easier. It, it, it almost becomes second nature because that's just part of putting out an album these days. It's like, okay, well, obviously I'm going to upload it to iTunes and Spotify and all that stuff. But in addition to that, U.S. copyright is going to be another platform where you're going to distribute or, or send your music to. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the things that can go wrong with copyright. Like if you don't file your copyrights on a song, if you don't get yourself protected, what can happen? Well, you actually are limited in your ability to enforce your copyright if somebody else is ripping off your music or your lyrics or even worse, if somebody else has a registered copyright for a very similar song, you might be up against them as well. So having that stuff registered in advance just allows you to not only protect your work, but also have that date that the work was created. And it also kind of serves as a notification that like, hey, we actually have registered this through the U.S. Copyright Office. So it's getting the full protection of the U.S. government with the Library of Congress. You just have more protection for yourself in case something does go wrong. Now, the other part of this is that you have to register it correctly. So if you register your album incorrectly, like if you accidentally mark the wrong category of like the type of work, then you're going to have to start all over again. So it, it, it is a little confusing the first time around. And if folks are like totally lost on it, you can always ask an IP attorney to help you with it. And even at that, it won't cost that much money. I would just say it's just like getting insurance for yourself. It's just a good idea to get it done early so that you don't have to pay a lot more later on down the line. Right. Now, it makes me think of the controversy that was in the news a couple of years ago. That song, Blurred Lines, I guess it was the estate of Marvin Gaye that was suing and saying that there was copyright infringement. Yeah. That's a hard one, right? Because songs have a little bit more to them than just music and lyrics, right? There's also kind of a vibe. I mean, wasn't that sort of the heart of that argument that they'd stolen the groove of that song or the vibe of that song? Yeah, it's, it's a really tough one because to a certain extent, it's going to be subjective. Like, how close are those lyrics? How close is that song itself? You know, like, if you're looking at music like Tom Petty won't back down versus the song Stay With Me or Vanilla Ice <laughs> and David Bowie slash Queen, there's definitely a lot of similarities. And sometimes it sounds like it's a direct lift. But in order to protect yourself against any kind of controversy, or at least to protect yourself as much as possible, copyright does try and play that role. It's not always going to be perfect, but it is just to be better safe than sorry. Right, right. That's, I guess, the idea is if you're faced with that situation to be at least somewhat armed against it. I mean, I have trouble, I guess, in this day and age, what with all the YouTube uploads, you know, just the the ton of user-generated content that's put on the internet every single day. It just seems like enforcing the copyrights that you own could be easily a full-time job. Yeah, it, it's definitely a challenge. And thankfully, there's a lot of companies that help kind of automate that process. So if you're uploading your song and you have a distributor like CD Baby or a DistroKid or something like that, a lot of times they have software that tries to match 
other people's uploads, especially in, in YouTube, Facebook's kind of catching up in this area. But, you know, as far as the major kind of distribution outlets go, they try and catch that using an automatic software and they'll flag it for you. That way, if someone else is using your song without your permission, you can do something about it. The same thing goes in reverse. Like if you cover somebody else's song, you actually might get flagged for it. I've even had it where sometimes people will flag my own videos of my own music and then I have to prove that I own the copyright so that I can get that takedown notice gone. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. It, wow. I'm always impressed with how much you do for your band. You know, I really feel like you go the extra mile in a serious way that a lot of people don't even think about doing, you know. So just to sort of round out the whole world of copyright, like, do you have any suggestions for other bands, you know, things that you would say are just best practices? Yeah, I mean, I would say definitely just build that in. The moment you start writing songs and you start assembling them and thinking like, okay, we're going to record this, we're going to put this out somewhere, or even if you're going to take it on stage, definitely register for the copyright, but also sign up for something like a pro or like a performing rights organization such as ASCAP, BMI, or CSAC, because that's just like an additional layer of protection. And also it ensures that you get royalties for your music if and when it is used. One of the things that I also kind of made a general practice is, is that I registered all of my music with ASCAP, and as soon as I'm done playing a show, I upload my set list so that I can collect royalties for the music I just played on stage. Mm, yeah, right. That's an excellent idea. And I think it's a, a pretty decent amount that you get for that set list. Yeah, I mean, if you're on tour, every, every little bit helps. Exactly. Well, Simon Tam, it's always educational talking to you. Thank you so much for being with me tonight again on The Future of What? Thanks again for having me.
That was Isolation Deprivation by Sweet Knives. We're excited to announce our new podcast series about Bratmobile's potty mouth. It's called Girl Germs, and you can check it out wherever you get your podcasts. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Sweet Knives and, of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. <laughs>